Well, I got to tell you, first of all, I don't like the idea of settling in. You know, settle in. It's like you're, you know, you sit back, take a nap, and wake, we'll wake you up in an hour. So let's forget that. Good morning. Uh, uh, welcome. Glad you've chosen to be with us, whether here in person, whether watching online, whether at North Avenue. Uh, good morning to you. Uh, today is actually a special day for a number of reasons. We have two national holidays that are happening today. One, many people aren't even aware of. I'll start with that one. If you didn't know it or recognize it, today is Juneteenth. June the 19th. Sadly, many people aren't even aware as to what the day means. And so I'll give you a quick background. June 19 recognizes the day of June 19th, 1865. It's on that day that a general by the name of Gordon Granger, General Granger, stood before the people of Galveston, Texas and read a proclamation. Two years earlier, the President of the United States, Abraham Lincoln, signed and put into place the Emancipation Proclamation, basically stating and proclaiming that every slave was now free. That was two years earlier, but the problem was many places weren't practicing it. And in two years later, in June, June 19th, 1865, General Granger stood up in Galveston, read the proclamation, and proclaimed that as of that date, the slaves were free. And on this day from Galveston going forward, and for Texas going forward, the people are to act accordingly to that proclamation. Every slave is made free. If a slave worker was still working, they are now considered to be an employee and would be paid and would be treated equally and fairly. And that day has been celebrated from that point forward as Juneteenth. Listen, if any group would be celebrating a day, it would seem to be Christians. uh, Celebrating beyond Easter, beyond um, Christmas, a day that we would celebrate the end of the sin of slavery as far as a nation practicing something and proclaiming it to be done. Now, we're in a, a series here in church history. And let's be real honest here, in church history, during the period of slavery, there were a number of Christians and quote-unquote churches that abused Scripture and misused Scripture to try to make a case for slavery and to keep it from being um, backed backed from and condemned. But I would also say that all through history and during that period as well, there was a core of solid believers who properly interpreted Scripture and proclaimed it to be sin. If you go back and read the the history books, that it was a core of Christians that were instrumental in bringing about that change in our our history. And so Juneteenth, and uh, we acknowledge that day of the end of slavery, and thankfully, where as a country we proclaim enough is enough and moving forward. Today is also Father's Day. Um, and uh, I was reading an article just about a week ago, a, little, a, a blog actually, where the writer said this, Father's Day, this national holiday that no one knows what to do with. I thought that was kind of interesting. And, and it's true as I'm thinking about it, Mother's Day is so much easier uh, if you will, you know, you buy some plants, a potted plant, a couple of flowers for the yard, you dress up and say, we're going to have a family picture and we'll go take you to a nice brunch. Done. Boom. Finished. Father's Day. What do you do with that? One, don't dress up for the picture. That's a gift right there. Uh, and, you know, finding a restaurant, good luck. They, everyone has, a, has something for Mother's Day, nothing for Father's Day, and don't buy me flowers. So it's kind of an odd day. And so we're thinking, now, in our church, on Mother's Day, we not just acknowledge moms, but we acknowledge women. 
and the value that God has placed in them and on them. And on Father's Day, we don't want to just acknowledge the fathers, but also men. So it's like, well, what should we do? So we had brainstorm. Hannah came and talked to me over seeing our big events and things. And so here's a couple of things we've done. We're doing in honor of Father's Day. First of all, no photo booth. You're welcome. You're welcome. So you don't have to dress up for a picture. No, no photo booth. One father said, how about no sermon? Not going to happen. <laughs> then said, how about shorter sermon? It just can't happen. I'm sorry. I'm trying. It just can't happen. But we can do this. Donuts. Donuts. We have donuts for all of the, everyone who's here today. So make sure you grab your donut along the way. Men's, men's ministries table has, a, has some books as well. But very, very sincerely hear this. Men who would pursue God in their lives, that's no small thing. Men who would pursue God in their lives, no small thing. In fact, a, man pursue, a father pursuing God is one of the greatest gifts that that father can give to their children. Men pursuing God is one of the greatest gifts that not only do you give to children, not only give you to church, but do you give to the world. So quite honestly, men, today we say thank you and we honor you in this day. Now, we're going to continue in our sermon this morning. We're going to continue talking about the church, and that's where we're at. The church is more than the building. We're exploring what the word church means. We're exploring things like, well, where did the church come from? How did it come to be? How did it start? And one of the questions that you ought to be thinking about, quite honestly, is how on earth did the message of Jesus ever get past the first century? You know, that first century, Jesus dies, he's resurrected, there's a small band of followers, about 100, 125. How on earth did the gospel story and the gospel message ever get beyond the first century to the place where today a third of the world population would claim to be Christians? How is that possible? We learned that on day one of the church, the very first day of the church, we learned that over 3,000 people came to Christ, from 100 to 125 to 3,000 all in one day in one moment. A staggering number. Churches today, we would be undone with ourselves as to what to do if that were to take place. And then a few days later, hundreds and thousands more. And if you look at on the unfolding of the church every day, hundreds and thousands more. To the place, and we've talked about that, about this, to the place where it is believed that 10 to 20% of the entire population of Jerusalem became followers of Jesus. Incredible. Now, Andy Stanley, as, <clears throat> using some of his resources, a number of others in our series, tells this story that is, that is worth you hearing because it made me stop and think as well. He tells this story. He and his son were touring China a number of years ago. <clears throat> And they were touring the registered churches in China. So there are churches in China. There are registered churches. And these are Bible-believing churches. But they're, of course, well-watched by the government. So those registered churches. There's unregistered churches. Harder to find those, of course, because those are the house churches of, across the whole country of, of China. Believers, followers of Jesus meeting. And then they went to some churches that were kind of unique churches. And they were churches where you had to have a passport to get in them. So that's because that a lot of the things that are manufactured in China are, of course, brought to the U.S. And so accordingly, there's an awful lot of American citizens who live in China that are a part of these companies. If you're going to make things for the Americans, you ought to have Americans running it because they know exactly what the Americans want and what they need, all those kind of things. So there's a number of churches that are started that are basically expat churches, people from not from the country. And, and, and they proclaim the gospel freely, but to get in, you have to have a passport. See, the local Chinese can't attend that, <clears throat> so only <clears throat> people from another country can. 
So they visit all those, and then one of the things in their tour was to go visit this huge manufacturing plant, and there was an American fellow there that was the manager of this plant, and he was leading them on this tour, this massive building, this massive uh, 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 enterprise, and they were shadowed along the way by this young Chinese woman, 22 to 23 years old, so very, very young, uh, and she was in training. She was uh, uh, in leadership training, so she's following not them. She's following this guy who's the manager because she's leaning, uh, learning about leadership. So they go through the day and have this tour. They get towards the end. And this manager of the, of the business and the building says to Andy Stanley, so do you have any questions? Referring specifically to him, this young woman steps up and says, well, I have a question. So it took him off guard a little bit because it was directed towards Andy and the tour was about them. But he's thinking in his mind, well, you know, she's learning about leadership and training. So maybe, maybe she asks a question about leadership and I can answer. So she goes, well, sure, what's your question? So with that, she looks at Andy Stanley and says, my first question to you is, are you a pastor? To which he said, I am. And she said, I knew I recognized your voice. She said, years ago, someone gave me a CD of you preaching. She said, that's changed my life. And all through this tour, I can hear your voice, and I I knew it was your voice. And she said, but now I have another question. Of course, Andy Stanley said, I'm just humbled. I'm humbled that here I am, and here's this woman in China who has been listening to me and would know who I am by my voice. And she said, I have another question for you. And she said this. She said, um... Why doesn't everyone in America go to church? Why doesn't everyone go to church? I mean, you live in a place where you have the freedom to openly be a part of a church, the freedom to be a part of such a movement. Why with all the freedom in all the churches and all the buildings, why is the church in America so small? Andy Stanley said this, sadly, he said, I didn't know how to answer her. And then I quote, he says this, How could I explain to her Americans, people with so many churches and so many opportunities, yet with so many cars, with so many boats, with so many lake houses and so many things that they're so apathetic to the one thing that really matters, but so focused on all the other things that don't. How, he said, do I explain that to her? Now, I sit there thinking, how do you explain that? How would you answer her? Now, this was not the case in the first century church. I mean, first century church that we're learning about, friends, there was a buzz in Jerusalem. Those first century followers of Christ, I mean, it was all about the gospel message. There was a a buzz throughout all of Jerusalem about Jesus and the resurrection. Such a buzz, of course, that the religious leaders um, were getting nervous about it, and they actually arrested the disciples and had them beaten. That's where we left off last week. In fact, we left off right here in verse 41 of Acts 5. The apostles left the Sanhedrin. They were arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin, and they left the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name, the name of Jesus. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They were arrested and they were beaten. We talked about that they were flogged. I mean, a horrific beating. And they left there. And what was the reaction? Number one, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy. And then on top of that, what did they do? They went right back at it. They were threatened with their lives, but they went right back at it. They went out with confidence. They went out boldly and they preached the story of Jesus. Well, the church continued to grow and continued to grow. New leaders in the church began to emerge into the story. And one of those new leaders is the guy named Stephen. 
Now, we don't know much about Stephen other than the fact, and we're now starting into this today's story, we don't know much about Stephen other than the fact that he was one of the first volunteer ministers in the church, a deacon in the church, someone who came to Christ and somewhere along the way began to say, where can I serve? How do I help? What can I do? A lot of you have been in that same place. <clears throat> you come to a place where you go, how do I, what do I do here? What can I, what can I do to, to, to be a part of this group? Well, that was Stephen. He jumped in and he served. He became bold in his faith, in his story. Now, he wasn't one of the apostles. He was new on the church scene. And we have in this story is this. You might recall that last week we talked about the fact that the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, wanted to kill the disciples. And a guy, one of the members of the Sanhedrin called Gamaliel, he stood up and said, don't do it. Remember? He said this. If this whole movement of theirs is a human thing, it's going to come to an end. It's a God thing. You don't want to be fighting against God because God wins. So basically, he said, <clears throat> leave them alone. And the Sanhedrin agrees. But now they're going after Stephen. The only thing we can guess is that their, their thought process might have been, well, he's not one of the apostles. And <clears throat> we said we wouldn't go after them, but he's not one of them. So they go after him. They arrest him. They accuse him of saying things that he never said. They accuse him of doing things that he never did. And at the end of their accusation, Stephen gets to answer back. He gives us one of the longest sermons in the Bible. And you can find it. It's in Acts chapter 7. We're not going to read it. We don't have time for it today. And when he gets done preaching, the people are moved. They're moved to kill him. Not exactly the response the preacher hopes for at the end of the sermon. But they're moved to kill him, and they actually do kill him. They're so angry at what he has to say, they carry him out, they carry him out of the city, they carry him outside of the walls, and they stone him, and he is dead. The first Christian martyr. Someone who was killed only because he was a follower of Jesus and proclaimed that message. Now make sure you understand this, because this is important to our, our whole theme today. Once he was killed... And there was no negative reprisal from the Romans. Don't forget, the Romans are in control. So they go kill somebody. The Romans typically would have come in and said, hey, listen, you're not taking law in your own hands. We're in charge here. And there would have been a reprisal. So they kill him, but there's no reprisal from the Romans. That lack of response from the Romans empowered those religious leaders to begin widespread, unrestricted persecution, the followers of Jesus. You know, they did it once, nothing happens. If you ever have a credit card stolen, I've had my credit card number stolen a couple of times. Years ago, it was interesting. There was a charge for $3. And I asked about it. You know this now. asked about it. What they do is they'll run some simple charge to see if it's flagged. And if it's not flagged, they go ahead. Well, they do it. Well, just test the waters. I kind of laughed in this case. It wasn't flagged. They, it was like three bucks for something. Then they charged $13 for flowers. And then they charged $33,000 for helicopter parts. <clears throat> Thankfully, it got flagged at the flowers and before the helicopter parts. They kill Stephen and they watch and see nothing happens. So this opens the window for severe persecution. Now, with this persecution taking place, a new name comes into the story. His name is Saul. Let's pick up in the story in Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him, referring to Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Now godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. 
But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Now, this guy named Saul, we actually know him, for those of us who've been in the church for a while, we actually know him as Paul. Later, his, he moves from the name Saul to Paul. Um, Saul was actually a Hebrew name of Paul, and Paul was either a Roman surname, because, of course, him being a Roman citizen, or perhaps the Greek uh, pronunciation of his Hebrew name. Now, in this part of the story, he's known as Saul, and at this part of the story, um, Stephen is stoned, and the Bible tells us that he is stoned with Paul's approval, which means that Paul, Saul, is off to the sideline, and he has some kind of authority, he has some kind of leadership, because as they're stoning Stephen, he's looking on with approval. So we have that part of the picture. Now, there's something very, very important that happened in these verses that you may have missed. Now, I'll take you back a couple weeks. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about the passage of Scripture where Jesus is on the hillside just before the ascension, and he says to his followers this. He said, listen, don't leave. Stay in Jerusalem. Wait here because the gift of the Holy Spirit is going to come. Remember? And he said, now you wait here. And then he says this, and when the Holy Spirit comes, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go tell this story. You're going to go preach this story. You're going to tell this story in Jerusalem. You're going to tell it in Judea. You're going to tell it in Samaria. And you're going to tell it all around the world. Now, we don't know what they were thinking, but we, we could kind of guess based on another other piece of Scripture. And our guess was they might have been thinking like this. You're going to go tell the story in Jerusalem. And they would go, absolutely. I mean, many of us live here in Jerusalem. And you're going to tell the story in Judea. Absolutely, because my roots are in Judea. We, I got family in Judea. Absolutely. You're going to go to Samaria. Ah, we don't like Samaria. We hate Samaria. You know, Jerusalem's good. Judea's great. But we're not going to Samaria. And you're going to go around the world. Well, around the world, you can die going around the world. You know, it's, it's dangerous out there. So, you know, not so, not so much about the other most parts of the world. Not so much about Samaria. But the other two were in. Remember we talked about that, that. That would be a reasonable response. Ends of the earth, not so much. Now, hear these next couple statements. People, all through church history have always liked the church the way it was when they first found it, including us. We like the church the way it was as we remember it. We love the church the way it was when we first found it. We have an attitude that goes like this. Listen, more people can come. In fact, we want more people to come. We just don't want them to come and change anything. We, we want them to come, but we want a church, the church to stay the same. I mean, you know, we are, we're slow to change, and we kind of like it the way it is. But so come, but just come as we are. Not come as you are. Come as we are. That's what we like about the church. Now, catch this. The text says this. Persecution breaks out, and the church, these exact words, the church was scattered. And then it says this. All of those Christians, except for the apostles... The apostles stayed in Jerusalem for the rest of these Christians, which would have been thousands of them, many of them, they all scattered. Where'd they scatter to? Judea and Samaria. And you know what's just outside of Samaria? The rest of the world. Just the way that Jesus said would happen. You're going to go tell this story. And I can see, ah, Samaria, not so much. Now they're in Samaria. And now they're all throughout Judea, and now they're all around the world. Now, the text tells us that Saul is going from house to house, and he's dragging off men and women, doesn't matter who they are, and putting them in prison for being followers of Jesus. Now, for three years, Saul persecuted the church relentlessly. He chased them, actually, from town to town. He chased them from region to region. 
Catch this. Basically, Saul was the, one of the chief reasons why in just three years, the gospel went to virtually the entire world. Did you catch that? Because of persecution, the gospel spread so quickly and went around the known world in a three-year period of time. See, now, if he had just left the Christians alone, here's what we know about Christians. If he would have just left them alone, they would have had a lovely little gathering in Jerusalem. They would have had a lovely church. It would be just the way that we all like it. They would have sung the songs we like. They would have done the way that we like it. Oh, there'd be little pockets here and there, but the church would be in Jerusalem and it'd be a really nice gathering. But instead, though there is a church in Jerusalem, there are now churches everywhere because the gospel message was spreading because they were chased from place to place. This goes on for three years, unchecked. But then everything changes. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So basically what he does, he goes, Saul goes to the high priest and says, listen, um, my work's done here in Jerusalem. I'm going to track these guys down and I'm going to go to other temples, other synagogues. I want letters from you giving me permission. Don't forget that he was not Jewish, giving me permission to go into these places and to arrest them and bring them back uh, to Jerusalem. He gets those letters. Now, why, was, why were the people still going to the temples? Because think about it. He's going to go to the temples and start there. Why there? Because it was still the center for spiritual life. So he's tracking them down. Now, remember, at this point in time, these followers of Jesus weren't called Christians yet. You notice it was called these, these followers of the way. That's what they were called. These people were part of this group called the way. We don't exactly know where that came from, but we've got a really good theological guess. Don't forget it's Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I am the way. So we're not sure who grabbed the term, but somewhere along the way, they kind of grabbed the term when Jesus said, I am the way, and they became the people of the way. Now, just a side note for you. If you're going to start a movement that you want to take into the world, you wouldn't start with this kind of background. You would not start a movement, and it would not be smart to say that to be a part of this group, there's only one way in, and that's through Jesus. You just wouldn't. If you want to get a movement going, you're going to make it as wide an opening as you can. Everybody come, doesn't matter what you believe, but no, they're very specific. The only way in is a very narrow way, and that is you have to, you have to say, yes, I believe in one person. This is not a good way to start. Um, sane people would not start a movement based on the entrance being one person, Jesus only. Uh, only crazy people would think of that. The same people would say, hey, everybody's welcome. And everybody's welcome, but there's only one way to the Father, and that's through what Jesus did. So Saul gets his letters, he gets his permission to arrest Christians, and he heads out to find them. So back to our story, verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Well, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So he's on his way, bright light, massive light to the point where it knocks him down, falls to the ground, and Jesus speaks. Now, here's a key note for you to get. 
Now, if the church were like most of us see it, or when we think of the word church, if it was the way most of us think about the word church, Jesus would have said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute it? Right? Because we think in terms of place. We think in terms of buildings. We think in terms of, well, the pastor, the church, the organization. But he doesn't say, why do you persecute it? He says, what? Why do you persecute me? That's what he says. Why do you persecute me? See, now remember, to be a follower of Jesus Christ, this is so critical. To be a true follower of Jesus Christ, it's an incarnational thing. You go, what does that mean? It means this. Listen carefully, friends. The day that you said yes to Jesus Christ, when you invite Jesus Christ into your life, the Bible tells us that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ dwells in me. Jesus is not just alive in the world somewhere. He's alive right here. He's alive in your heart and in your heart and in your heart and in your heart and in your heart. He's alive inside. That's the incarnational reality of being a follower of Jesus. That through the Holy Spirit, Christ is alive in us. That's why something happens when we gather together, right? That's why we get together, we begin to sing. You begin to go, oh, I sense something. You sense the presence of Christ in one another and present in the room. That's why Paul says, I mean, that's why God says to Saul, listen, why do you persecute me? You see, if you're persecuting one of my people, you're persecuting me because it's an incarnational thing. It's not just about something we watch or observe from the side. So Jesus says, me. You persecute me. I like, Paul's, I like Saul's response. Paul's response, he goes, well, now, exactly who are you, Lord? Um, kind of an interesting question here. Listen, if you're leaving today and there's a huge bright light that knocks you out of the car onto the ground, I don't think you have to ask who, who's speaking. I think you can just assume it's God. But Saul wants to be real clear here, because don't forget we talked about this last week too. God's not the issue for most people. Who is? Jesus Christ. You can talk about God and spiritual things with people, but when you start talking about Jesus Christ, that kind of gets like, oh, wait a minute, I'm not sure if I believe in Jesus Christ. So he goes, be clear, Lord, who exactly are you? And Jesus says, well, it's me. I am Jesus. And then he says to Saul, now get up. And go into the city and you'll be told what to do next. We don't have any grand conversion moment that we see there. It's just to get up and go to the city. So back to our story in verse 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. So for three days, he's being led around. In that moment, Paul, Saul, Paul is left blind. You can imagine that immediately Paul became very spiritual. We all become very spiritually when something like that happens. I'm not necessarily a follower of God, but I would like God to get my sight back. So, oh God, heal me quickly, right? Oh God, please do something. A lot of people get, get real spiritual in a difficult moment. So that's the position where Saul is in. Oh, Lord, I want to see again, so do something. For three days, he's led around by the hand. Back to our story in verse 10. Now, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Of course, he's very spiritual now. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. 
Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. So here's the conversation. God says, Ananias, yes, Lord, I want you to go to number eight, Straight Street. I kind of like that detail. Straight Street. I mean, forget Google Maps, forget your GPS. You know, God's got it right nailed. I'm going to go to Straight Street. You're going to go to so-and-so's house. You're going to ask for Saul from Tarsus. I can imagine that Ananias going, Saul, Saul. Name rings a bell. Lord, in case you missed it, we know about this guy. He's the guy who's been killing Christians. He's the guy who came to kill people like me. He's the one who's been beating and arresting Christians, again, like me and my family. Uh, Lord, are you sure that's the guy? And God is real clear, yeah, that's the guy. Now get going. Now here's where the story gets really good. It gets really rich and where it begins to make sense for us today. Here's back in the the story of verse 15. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Now, here's the part where it gets rich. How in the world could the message of Jesus Christ survive the first century? How in the world with such intense persecution does the message survive? How in the world could this message travel the entire known world just in this small period of time of the first century? Here it is in verse 15. Just read it for you. It said this. This man, referring to Saul, Paul, this man is my chosen instrument to tell who? Not just the people who believe in God. Not just the Jews who are looking for the Messiah to come, but this guy is my chosen instrument to, yes, tell them, but also to tell the Jews and the Gentiles. This is my chosen guy who's going to go, and he's going to go tell the people who believe in God. They're just not sure what they believe about God. But on top of that, he's the guy I've chosen to go and tell the people who are sure there is no God. He's going to go tell the people who are sure there is a God. He's going to go talk to the people who are sure there is no God. He's my chosen guy. And Ananias says, okay. Now, can you imagine you're Ananias and you go and you knock on a door you've never been to and you ask for Saul and they say he's here. And imagine for a moment, there you stand for that first second. Here's the guy who has killed your friends. Here's the guy, you know the story, you know how he's beaten people, you know how he's persecuted people, you know that he was coming for you as well, and there you stand looking at the guy who's killed and tortured so many people you know. And yet he goes, verse 17, and then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Paul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on his name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? It's like, is this the same guy? 
It was astounding. They'd never seen anything like it. Such a radical change. Now, what's interesting is in the next 12 years or so, 12, 14 years or so, he basically disappears. Saul basically disappears. He shows up now and then, but for the most part, he's quiet. You know why, right? Because he's getting an education. He's learning. He's spending time with all of the followers of Jesus. He spent time in Damascus with those followers of Jesus. He goes in different places. He spends time with the followers. Galatians tells us that he spends two weeks just with Peter. Two weeks just with Peter, getting background. It also says he spent extended time with James, the brother of Jesus. That would be something, right? To sit down with James and say, now listen, you're actually the brother of Jesus. Tell me all about him. And James saying, well, I can tell you every detail. And by the way, he is my brother and he is the Messiah. He is the one sent from God. I know it's crazy, but he is the one. He spends all this time in these years with these followers of Jesus, interviewing them, hearing their stories, documenting and getting it all down. And after about 12 years or so, he's now known as Paul. And he heads out on his first missionary journey. For about 10 years or so, he travels and throughout Turkey and Greece, preaching and teaching, and all over the country, little ecclesias pop up. Remember ecclesia? Gathering of followers of Jesus. Little churches. Everywhere he goes, little churches pop up. Now, what's interesting in all this, the text tells us that in Jerusalem, everyone but the apostles were scattered. So most of these thousands of believers all scattered, except for the apostles, the original 11 and maybe a few others were left in Jerusalem. So it's kind of funny about this. It's almost like the apostle Paul says this, listen, you guys, you get your hands full here. You got one church here. You stay, I'll take the rest of the world. I mean, what a great statement. You stay in Jerusalem. I'll just take everywhere else in the world. Everybody okay with that? And for some reason, they all say yes. Nobody says, no, 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 let us go too. No, they, uh, yeah, you go, we'll stay here, you take care of the world. So that's what he does. And he goes out and he preaches and he teaches and he travels all the regions of the known world. He goes to the synagogues first to convince as many Jews who will listen, because don't forget, that's the place where they would all be assembled. And he goes there and usually what would happen is this, they would usually turn on him, usually throw him out, beat him up or try to stone him. So he'd go there until his time was done, and he always knew when time was up. They were very clear about it, and he was done there. And after he'd be chased out of there, he'd shake it off, and then he'd go to the non-Jews. You see, it wasn't just a message for one group. It was a message for every group. But he'd start with the Jews, and then he'd go to all the Gentiles, all the people who weren't in the churches, weren't in the synagogues. He does this for years and goes wherever a ship can take him or where a foot can take him, he travels and he preaches. At 58, he's arrested and he's put in jail for two years. And then he makes the proclamation that he's a Roman citizen. And you might know some of this from church history. Some would know that if you're a Roman citizen, if you proclaim that to be a citizen, every Roman citizen has the right, if they're going to be put on trial, to actually be sent to Rome to be put on trial. So he plays the card, says, I'm a Roman citizen. So they're going to send him to Rome. He goes to Rome. He gets to Rome and he's put in prison there for two years, house arrest for two years. Now catch this, during those two years of house arrest, he was writing letters. He wrote a letter to the church in in Ephesus, we call it the book of Ephesians. He wrote a letter to the church at Philippi, we know it as the book of Philippians. So he's writing letters, letters that we have today. And he's writing to these churches, these little ecclesias, not to buildings, but to gatherings of people. After two years he's released, guess what he does? Right back at it. Right back at it, traveling, preaching, telling the story. 
And then in the year AD 66, he was arrested yet again. This time he's put into a real prison. Nero was the emperor at that time. And then in approximately the year 67 AD, probably early in the morning or probably at dusk one night, the prison doors were open. Guards took him out, led him to an area that he probably would have recognized. It would be the area where they did executions. And in that place, with no eyewitnesses, no friends, no family members, they beheaded the Apostle Paul. We don't know what they did with the body. They don't know what they did with the remains. But his life ends. His life ends. And the impact continues. Because here we are today still telling his story. Side note, one year later, Nero commits suicide. And what does the world know about Nero? Or how is the world impacted by Nero? Not at all. Well, except for there's a pizza chain in the Midwest called Nero's Pizza. But other than that, (laughs) nothing. And here we are talking about the Apostle Paul and the story of Jesus. Now, listen to this very carefully because here's where application happens for us today. Listen very, very carefully. Very, very, very bad things can happen to very, very good people. And God is still God. Let that sink in because we hate that thought, but it's true. We want to think that's not the case. Very, very good people don't have very, very bad things happen. Sorry. Very, very bad things happen to very good people, and God is still God. Unexplainable things can happen to people of extraordinary faith, and God is still God. Now, listen. Do you realize that has been a part of the story of the church from the very, very beginning? And if we go back and look throughout the book of Acts, we do not find Christians huddled together afraid that somehow God has lost control. We don't find that. Yet I have to be honest, that's the feeling I get from a lot of Christians today, don't you? The idea that somehow everything in this world and going on is out of control. We never find these these Christians in the book of Acts. We never find these Christians who are facing persecution, who are facing beatings, arrest, and death and torture. We never have them getting ready to fight back. We never have them with their arms up going, ah, what are we going to do next? None of these American-type complaints about our Christian freedoms or where is God in all this. Nope, just bold, confident followers of Jesus telling one simple story. And all thanks to a Christian killer named Saul that we know as Paul, the gospel message in a short amount of time, incredibly short, got outside of Jerusalem got outside of Judea, got outside of Samaria, and literally reached around the world. It's actually quite incredible. See, that wouldn't be any major feat today. We've got social media. We've got the internet. Man, we can send a message in the world in like three seconds. But here, it's all by mouth, all by foot. From all we know about the Apostle Paul, he was well-educated, probably wealthy, certainly influential, and an influencer of people. From what we know of the Apostle Paul, he had access and influence that the the average Jew and even the average uh, Gentile would never have had. Interesting to think about this. One key thing 
that God raised up Paul to do specifically was to help all of those people who have no God background. All of those people who knew nothing about the Old Testament, all of those people who knew nothing about spiritual things, God raised up Paul so that those people who are not looking for the Messiah or not even thinking that God could possibly even matter in this world, he raised him up so that they could understand the story because they had no basis to understand the story. Make sure you get that. If you ever feel like, oh, what's the hope of the world today because no one even believes in God anymore? Listen, we're made for this moment. The Apostle Paul was made for the moment. We have become so settled in our thinking that, well, everyone in the world, everyone in the United States, they all believe in God, so we start from that platform. They don't anymore. And stop raising your hands and saying, oh my, oh my, where is God? God's right here. He raised up the Apostle Paul for those people who know nothing about God, who care nothing about God, so that they could understand the story of how Jesus Jesus Christ could change their lives. Now let's look at one last text and we'll wrap up from 1 Corinthians. Because the Apostle Paul also, I mean, basically gives, not also, but basically gives the simple outline of the gospel story of the church. It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance. There's the starting place. He says, let me tell you what's most important. He said, I'm gonna give you some background here. Here's, here's now listen carefully. I'm gonna tell you what's important. If you ever get lost in your thought process about the Bible, I'm gonna tell you what's important. If you ever read the Bible and you're overwhelmed by all the information that's there, I'm going to tell you what's important. If you ever look at this world and you get confused by what you see in the culture, I'm going to help you know what's important. If you ever find yourself focusing on the wrong thing, I'm going to help you. When the world scares you, I'm going to tell you what's important. When you forget everything else and you're rattled because of the moment, I'm going to tell you what's important. Here it is. Back to our text in verse 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That's here. Here's the most important thing. That Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James. And then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. He said, I'm going to tell you what's most important. When you get bogged down in the world, I'm going to tell you what's most important. Jesus died for your sins. He was buried. On the third day, he arose from the grave. He appeared to Cephas, Peter. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to all the disciples. And then he appeared to over 500 people, so many eyewitnesses. Now remember that this would have been written about 20 to 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul had spent time with all these eyewitnesses. He'd spent time with all of them, hearing their stories and authenticating their story. And what he's saying is this. He's saying this, actually. He says, listen, and most of these people, they're still alive. 
So here's the deal. You don't believe me? Go talk to them. See, it's not something that happened before, and eh, you know, I can, I'm kind of piecing the story. Because he, he's got the story exactly because he's talked to the eyewitnesses, and he said, listen, and they're still alive. Most of them are still alive, so go talk to them. If you've got your doubts, go ask them, because I've seen them. And then Paul says this in verse 9. He says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. I'm the worst, I'm the least because I actually killed Christians. I killed Stephen simply for saying he was a follower of Jesus. And then he adds this, our last verse, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. He goes, I got to tell you something. He goes, I cannot figure out for the life of me why God would choose to use me. If there's anyone who deserved to be punished, if there's anyone who would deserve to be removed from this ecclesia, to be removed from this body of believers, it would be me. And he said, but I got to tell you, it's all grace. I don't understand it. What's the message he says? Pretty straightforward. He goes, here's the message I preach. Jesus Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He was raised from the dead. And all sorts of peace saw, people saw him. Yeah, yeah, but wait, wait. But what about the dinosaurs and the whole evolutionary thing? Jesus Christ died for your sins, was buried, raised from the dead, and appeared, all his people saw him. Yeah, but, but, but don't you think that the Ten Commandments should be posted in schools and in public places? And don't you think that prayer should be brought back into the school? Sorry. Jesus Christ died for your sins, went to the tomb, buried, there for three days, brought back to life, and appeared to hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what about how liberal our government has gone and how liberal the culture is going and the removal of our rights? Oh, stop it. Sorry. Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He came back to life and appeared to so many people. What else do you want to throw in there? Is a smoke screen. Yeah, but what about Jesus Christ? Get it? It's pretty simple. Friends, all of the stuff that you are hearing and watching on the news, that I'm hearing and watching on the news, all the things that you're listening to and whatever website, wherever it be, all those things, and they can be absolutely right, not wrong, absolutely right. Do you know what they are? They're distractions. You see, I fill my life with so many distractions, and all of those things are distractions. Distractions from the simple job and message of the church getting the church off track distractions so in closing two questions question number one have you ever given your life to Jesus Christ if you're here if you're watching listening and you've never said yes I want to be a follower of Jesus I say to you I don't know why not because I have to be honest, it just makes sense. Well, you have to say that. No, I do not have to say that. I say that because I've researched it and I look at it. I've looked at it all and it just makes sense to follow Jesus. And so I would say to you, why not? 
And if you want to ask some questions, we'll ask them. But I would just say to you, don't get hung up on the dinosaurs. Jesus Christ died for our sins. It's a pretty simple story. That's the first question. Second question, are you allowing yourself to get distracted from the church being the church? You're going to be one of those Christians that are so wrapped up in all the stuff out there that you've forgotten about Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, came back to life, appeared to so many, and he's radically changed my life. That's the story of the church. That's what we're called to be. Are you letting yourself get distracted? Seems to me, as I watch and read the things that I see in the world happening with the church, seems like the church is getting distracted. And it's a pretty straightforward message. That's who we're called to be. Stand, please. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the evil one has profoundly found the way to isolate and stifle and get the church off track. All all he's got to do is fill our eyes and our ears with all the stuff happening in the world and convince us that somehow it's all out of control. May he not succeed. Now, he will not eventually succeed because your church wins. But we want to be a part of that winning team. We want to be active in that. So restore in us the truth of the simple story. Yep, you died for my sins. Yep, you were dead and you came back to life. And that gives me hope. And all sorts of people can testify to the truth. And so, Lord, I want to tell your story to others. May that be our story. Dismiss us in your grace. Protect us from that which distracts us. Keep us on mission for your kingdom come. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.